Wow. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I can certainly tell you without a doubt that since we arrived here, Emily and I and our girls, we, we feel so welcomed by Harvest. Um, this is awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about what the future might hold, what God might be doing. Uh, you know, when Cal asked me uh, to preach, one of the things he asked me, what service do you want to preach at first? And I said, absolutely, without a doubt, the Saturday night, 5 p.m. service... <laughs> Because I just had this feeling, and it was an educated feeling, that this service would be the most receptive to the new guy, right? Okay? All right. So that's, that's, that's why I chose you, Saturday night, 5 p.m. And another thing, oh, by the way, if you have your Bibles, you should open those to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, and if you don't have a a Bible, please raise your hand. We're going to have ushers who are already coming down the aisles to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, if you don't own a Bible, we want to give you the Bible that these ushers are going to hand you and you take that home and keep it. It's our gift to you. First Kings 18. I was really, really excited about preaching this text. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's one of the most exciting stories in the Old Testament. And I thought, you know what? I got to prepare. I really need to go there literally go there and see this mountain. So in my preparation, I want you to know how prepared I am. In my preparation, I actually went to Mount Carmel. So there's a picture of me on the screen, uh, me at Mount Carmel. Some of you get the joke, some of you don't, and that's okay. Uh, here's a real picture of me and, and my family. Yes, friends, I married way up, and I have fathered way, way up. Um, but, but truly, all, all kidding aside, we uh, are, are grateful to be here. And, and let me just add this. This is exciting for me in, on, on multiple levels, but just for the, the, the mere fact that I am privileged to be on this stage preaching uh, to a church and at a church and with a church that has, without apology, held high the authority of God's word in this community. Uh, I'm pumped for this. And I'm, I feel honored and privileged, and so why don't we, why don't we get going, 1 Kings 18. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. If you've known me for more than five minutes, you probably know that I am from the great state of Oklahoma. Yes, thank you. We've got an oaky or two in the room. I'm feeling even more welcomed, but... but you probably know I was born in Oklahoma. Now, when I mention that state, when I mention Oklahoma, a few things may come to your mind. The musical. Yeah. Here we go. We got, we got some theaters in the room, right? Uh, maybe football. You should, you should know about football, right? 6-0, and just, just came off a win against Texas. We're looking good. Or what about horses? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of horses in Oklahoma. Uh, tornadoes. That's, some of you are probably thinking tornadoes. Right? And, and you'd, you'd be absolutely right about the tornadoes because if, as you might be aware, in Oklahoma, we sit right in the middle of what's known as Tornado Alley, right? Tornado Alley, you've heard of this. And if you've lived there for more than 15 minutes, you know about what's called the EF scale or the F scale, which measures the strength of tornadoes, and they estimate how much damage those tornadoes will do. When it comes to be about April and definitely May, you better have your head on a swivel in Oklahoma. 
Now, you know this, that, that you might notice the scale, it goes from F1 to F5, and here's a, a picture of it for you uh, that, that you can kind of glean from, but, uh, you know, F0, that's not really a thing anymore, but F1, you might have a little roof damage from the storm, some tree limbs down, all in all, not a big deal, but with an F2, it gets a little more serious. Homes and buildings are damaged. Um, you, you might have to deal with some shingles being blown off. And then it goes to F3, and, and, and really, you might lose your house. I hope you're insured if it's F3 or bigger. And then we get to F4, where the winds are so strong that they can flip a train car and definitely knock down every wall in your house. And when you get to this point, when you get to an F4, you better be under the ground. You better be underground or your life is in serious risk. And then there's F5. And at this point, there's really not much you can do in all seriousness. There's not much you can do. And it's not just here with an F5 that the homes or buildings are toppled. They are just gone, completely utterly gone, totally lifted and blown away. The, the strength of some of these storms is catastrophic. In fact, the highest wind speed measured on Doppler radar was in one of these storms in Oklahoma, 302 miles per hour. It's devastating. It's total destruction. There's nothing left. And what am I getting at? Why, why is this kid from Oklahoma freaking me out about tornadoes this morning or this evening? See, I'm already ready for tomorrow. <laughs> It's because this scale, this idea of strengthening storms is actually a really good a parallel, a really good picture of what we're going to see in our text this evening. This progression, the scale of destruction is linked directly or at least paints a picture of sin and duplicity and the damage that that can cause in our lives. We're going to see in 1 Kings 18, we're going to see a people whose devotion to God is divided, and if left unchecked, leads to their total destruction. So here's our big idea. Our big idea this, this evening is that divided devotion leads to destruction. Pretty simple. Divided devotion leads to destruction. In other words, the scale or degree of how divided your worship is between God and the world, or between God and self, will determine how much destruction you are going to see. It's that old idea that, that our Lord said that you can't serve two masters. And a key verse in this passage that really highlights the idea is verse 21, 1 Kings 18, verse 21, when Elijah comes near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Meaning what? How long are you going to be on the fence? How long are you going to go back and forth? How long are we going to submit our lives just partially to God? Because if we go on living this way, if we don't submit our whole and exclusive worship and devotion to the one true God, hear this, it's not going to end well for you. It will ultimately lead to ruin and chaos in your life, and worse, in eternity. This whole scale, it's essentially what we see in Proverbs 13. Shout out back to that great series we did in Proverbs over the summer. Proverbs 13, it says this, whoever despises the word brings destruction upon himself. Pretty clear again. 
but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. So let's pick up where, we, uh, where Pastor Cal left off last week. Remember that uh, in Israel at this time, there's a bunch of fa- false prophets. Uh, much of Israel had fallen into this worship of a false pagan god named Baal. Their, their devotion was split. Their worship was split between the pagan gods of, of the Canaanites and, and the one true God of Israel. And it just so happens that, that God's prophet Elijah declared that there was going to be a drought in the land. And it wasn't going to rain until Elijah said so. We even see at the beginning of chapter 18 that, that Jezebel, uh, King Ahab's wife, is hunting down and killing Israel's prophets, the ones who had been faithful to Yahweh. And it's so bad, there's a guy named Obadiah serving in Ahab's house that secretly is rounding up and hiding these prophets in caves to save their lives. And so here's Elijah entering back into the scene after spending his time away in Sidon, where we learned last week that he went to school. Who remembers that great sermon from Pastor Kyle? He went to school to prepare for his ministry. So let's pick up in verse 7. And right here, we see that Elijah is about, is about to do his confrontation. He's about to confront King Ahab for his sin, for Ahab's sin and failure to protect Israel from false and divided worship. But before we get to these words, this confrontation, remember Ahab, or see that Ahab has already, he's already in the F1 category And that is that divided devotion begins with what? Neglecting God's word. Our divided devotion begins with neglecting God's word. Remember back at the end of chapter 16 and even into chapter 17 where Ahab, what did he do? He did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, and that he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In short, this is a bad dude. This is a terrible king. He has abandoned the law of God and set up idol worship full of wicked practices to the God of the Sidonians. And we're talking cult prostitution, child sacrifice, bodily mutilation, you name it, they were probably doing it. But nine times out of ten, let's be careful before we cast stones, right? Nine times out of ten, this is where our faith, where our devotion to God starts to become split, starts to become divided. It's when we abandon God's guidance in our lives. We get too busy or we get too distracted from his word. We don't stay disciplined. Or, or maybe we become so entertained or attracted by the allurements of this world that our adherence to the word is splintered or even pushed totally aside. How often is it that, that we, when we find a believer in crisis, ask a soul care pastor, when we find a believer in crisis, how many times can they say that it's, it's gone back to or we can trace it back to they haven't been in the Word in months. Uh, take it from me. In my own life, those times when I'm more irritable, the times when I'm losing my patience, the times when I lack faith, when have you been in the Word? When's the last time you were in the Word? It's always traced back to, I haven't spent time with Jesus. It's why the psalmist says the word is a what? It's a lamp for our feet and a light to my path. It keeps us walking straight. It keeps us from walking in the dark. But Ahab, King Ahab, abandoned it. He threw, it, he threw away his lamp in exchange for power 
influence, and pleasure. So let's look at this confrontation finally. Let's look at Elijah confronting him in verse 17 and 18 of our chapter. When Ahab saw Elijah, here comes Elijah to confront. Ahab said to him, it is you, the troubler of Israel. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Notice what Ahab does here. Isn't this isn't this amazing in the, in the negative sense of the word. He doesn't put the blame of Israel's problems on himself, the, the king who is responsible for the care of the people. Who does he put the blame on? The, the prophet. The, 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 he puts the blame on Elijah, the one calling Ahab back from his sin. And this is Ahab already billowing into an F2. Because, he is, because his neglect of God's word has caused him to become blind to correction. Blind to correction. Here's another proverb for you. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Don't you love how direct the ESV is there? Pretty, pretty straight to the point. If you don't like biblical correction, listen, you're stupid. I'm going to do a Pastor Cal here. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's stupid. Saturday at 5 p.m., you're on it. I'm just reading the Bible to you. Not wanting biblical correction is stupid. Ahab slid into this stupidity because he began to delight. He began to delight in his sin. And further, not only could he not see his own fault, he saw anyone that would get in his way, anyone that would question him or threaten his lifestyle to be a threat and not a friend. Let me ask you this. How do you deal, how do you respond to the accountability of another believer? How do you, how do you respond to the loving correction of a pastor or, or a small group leader or even a soul care counselor? Do you see them as an advocate or do you see them as an adversary? Uh, now listen, I, I think our initial reaction, I'm thinking in my own heart, my initial rea reaction is often the wrong one. My initial reaction is always sort of abrasive and defensive when people come to correct me. Why are you getting in my business? That's private. That's my thing. That's my stuff. It's not that bad anyway. But what you're really saying in the moment is that you'd rather walk in the blindness of your sin because you secretly love it. But watch what this leads to. Now you're in F3. Things are getting serious. Now damage is likely to happen in your life if it hasn't happened already. And at this point, sadly, because blindness to correction leads to your delusion. Blindness to correction leads to delusion. Look at verse 24. But notice here that Elijah, uh, in the story, he's going to call everyone together at Carmel to demonstrate who the one true God is. That's what's at stake here uh, in this chapter. He wants everyone to know that, that God deserves, the God of Israel deserves, even demands our undivided devotion. So here it is, verse 20 to 24. Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on on the wood and and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of my God, of the Lord, the God who answers and and the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He will be, he is God. And all the people answered, here it is. It is well spoken. It is well spoken. It's crazy, right? Thinking they win. It's well spoken. Let's do it. You're on, Elijah. They're, they're so delusional. They're so confident in this contest of fire between their God, Baal, and the God of Israel. Against the God who called down the plagues uh, on Egypt and on Pharaoh and the God that led them through the, the parting of the Red Sea, who, who guided them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. That's the God who they are going to go up against. But wait a minute, it's, e- it's easy for us to sit back and criticize, right? To, to, to think we'd never allow ourselves to fall to that level of delusion or danger. Look at these silly Baal worshipers. But that's the deceitful nature and delusion of sin. We hear it time and time again. I can hide this sin forever. I don't have to tell anyone. It's not hurting anyone. I can give it up anytime I want, and like the prophets of Baal, we think we can beat God. Uh, we think we can outsmart him, or at least outsmart his people that he's put in our lives around us. And so goes the delusion, and so goes the downward spiral. The cold, dry air of the human heart collides with the hot, humid air of idol worship, and now you've exploded into an F4. where your delusion leads to foolishness. Will you read with me, starting in verse 25? Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. And all the middle school boys chuckled, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That's the evening offering. But Here it is, the absolute most devastating, heartbreaking words. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This is so tragic. But it's so characteristic of where so many people are today. They're crying out to and trusting in man-made gods, man-made motivations, worldviews, or wisdoms. They are totally empty. They are totally corrupt. And they are totally void. And some are even resorting to self-harm or self-mutilation, all in the name of identity. 
Speaking of identity, some try to seek fulfillment or meaning in their life through the worldly, appear, uh, worldly appeals of success, glory, riches, fame. Uh, who knows Tom Brady? Michigan fans in the room? Yeah, there we are. Tom Brady, no doubt, and I'm, I'm not even a Michigan fan, not even a Patriots fan, I will tell you, no doubt, without qualification, greatest quarterback of all time, right? Seven Super Bowl rings, that's a record. But back in 2005, really interesting story, after his third Super Bowl, I think, he's interviewed, on, I think it's 60 Minutes, it doesn't matter, but he's interviewed and he's asked if he finally felt fulfilled in life. You feel fulfilled, three-time Super Bowl champion. If you, did you achieve all that you hoped that you would? If, if you're satisfied, Tom Brady, and his response is really telling. He says this, there are times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, there's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. What else is there for me? And then the interviewer asks him, so, so what's the answer, Tom Brady, greatest of all time? What's the answer? And Brady says to him, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Amazing. <laughs> despite all of his successes, despite all of his riches, despite all of the highest forms of fame and achievement you can gain on planet Earth, none of it fulfilled the void that his heart was missing. None of it answered None of it spoke to him at the core of who he is, a man created to love God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Here's a question, maybe rhetorical. Do you think he figured it out after Super Bowl number seven? But let's check our own hearts here. How many of us buy into similar lies? For most of us, it's not sports or even fame, but how often do we believe those earthly allurements will be what truly completes us. If I just get the next thing, if I just get the degree, the, the, the degree, the job, the promotion, the house, set myself up for this amazing retirement. It's as if we believe those things will answer the cry of our hearts. But we become just like the prophets of Baal, crying out to literally nothing. So now Elijah is going to demonstrate that. He's going to demonstrate that they are crying out to nothing in his showdown with the prophets of Baal. And, and if you notice, he stacks all the cards against himself and really all the cards against Yahweh, his God. He wants to leave no doubt about who can beat his God. There's going to be no debate about who deserves our whole heart. So what does he do? First of all, he's already outnumbered 850 to 1. There's, eight, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, there's 450 prophets of Baal, and he's the only one standing. All the others crying out to their God the entire day. He's mocking them. He's smack-talking them because he's confident in the God of Israel, so confident that he even drenches his altar with water, 12 jars of water in all, and then he digs a trench around the altar and fills that with water in a drought, no less. It's a confident man. Is a bold prophet of God, a courageous prophet saying, I am going to leave no doubt Remember, Baal was allegedly supposed to send fire from heaven, but that statued bull couldn't come up with a spark. 
And here's Elijah setting up this soggy, saturated altar of sacrifice. And he cries out to God in verse 36. He says, uh, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I wonder if that fire from heaven was like a tornado. Ever seen a fire tornado? Maybe on TV? A, f- a flaming vortex, just burning and sucking up every drop of water, consuming every piece of wood, every stone upward to God as an accepted offering. Total consumption, total victory. And the people of Israel see it immediately. I wonder what some of them said. What have we done? What, we were so wrong about this. Let's fall on our faces. They repent, falling on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. Because they realize this, that divided devotion requires repentance. Divided devotion requires repentance. And if you notice in that last section of the chapter, after the victory on Carmel and after the repentance of the people, what happens? Rain. The rain comes. Why? Because God's refreshment, that is his blessing, his grace, follows the genuine repentance of his people. Let me be clear. I'm not going to guarantee this. I can't guarantee that there won't be earthly consequences when we confess and repent. But I can definitely say this. It's going to go better for you. It's going to go better for us if we bring it into the light rather than waiting till we get caught. Repent, therefore, as Peter says in Acts chapter 3, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Friends, refreshment follows repentance. Refreshment follows repentance. And it's what God wants for you. It's what he wants to do in you. And it may take some time. It may take some work. But we can trust him to clean up our messes. We can trust him to clean up the messes due to the divided devotion in our lives that we've created. But what comes with that? What's the result of the refreshment? It's calm. Calm. Instead of chaos. What comes with that is peace. Peace instead of turmoil. With that process will come genuine rest for your soul. It is the better way, friends. You know, it's crazy just how fast tornadoes can form. How quickly they can go from F1 to F5. It can take as little as an hour and sometimes maybe even less. But what about us? What about us? How how quickly does our sin, our trying to walk the tightrope between God and the world escalate into destruction? A month? A week? Here's what's so frightening about this. It's incredible, again, in the negative sense of that word, just how fast it really does happen sometimes. When a seemingly mature believer, just ask pastors anywhere. When a seemingly mature believer out of nowhere with no warning just 
blows up. They just blow up. I think part of it is something that Pastor Cal said last week. Well, last week, remember what he said? That our lives in private, who we are in private will determine our life and our faith. Who we are in private will determine who we really are in our faith, in our walk. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. The, the, the horrifying thing, the horrifying thing about this scale is that you can be all the way to F4, maybe even into an F5, and nobody even knows about it. You may not even know about it. And the nature of this is that because of our blindness and delusion, we rarely, if ever, know just how bad it is getting. Just how dire it is in the moment. You need to get off the scale. You need to get off that uh, progression. You need to get out of that storm, believer, before it's too late. Well, well, well there is still time. Repent. Put your face to the ground. If you need to, put your face under the ground. <laughs> so maybe that's something some of us need to do tonight. Put your face to the ground in response to God's word. Get under the authority of Christ to get off the destructive path. So where are you? Where are you on the scale, on the progression? Where are you currently being deceived? What area, what areas of your life, in your life, is your commitment to God divided? Where's the duplicity? Are you properly, properly and clearly seeing just how dangerous of a situation this is? What can you change? What can you change right now, today, before you get caught in the spiral? Because let me tell you, the longer you stay on this progression, the longer you stay on this scale, the worse the damage is going to be. And before you know it, and certainly before you're ready for it, you'll be F5. Full-on F5, where we see that a life of foolishness leads to destruction. What's that look like? Well, here's what a real F5 looks like. These next two pictures are from Moore, Oklahoma in May of 2013. And there's another one, the third picture, is from May of 1999. You can see the path. These neighborhoods are just gone. Drop these pictures, drop these images into your life. Marriages flattened, families broken, relationships completely blown away, pain, suffering, loss. And if it doesn't paint a clear enough picture, if that doesn't paint a clear enough picture, let's read together in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is a clear and definitive demonstration of God's judgment on his enemies. But it is also an illustration. It's an illustration of the judgment that awaits anyone who fails to find the safe place 
who fails to find the safe place, who fails to repent and put their faith in Christ. Friends, if you're anywhere on the scale, F1 to F4, there's still time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent, right? There's still time. Stop, head for cover. Take refuge in the rock who is Christ. He is the mighty fortress who prevails against any storm. To be honest, I wouldn't be doing my duty if I didn't warn you there will be a day when it will be too late. When the warnings are too late, when you're out of time, when the storm reaches its point of no return, when it's too late to get out of the way, so regardless of where you are, regardless of where you are tonight in this building, in this room, know this, Jesus can rescue you. Jesus can rescue you. He can rescue anyone from any point on this scale. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ truly. And this is the first time you are seeing just how desperate the situation is, just how dangerous the situation is. Or maybe you are a believer and, you're, and you find yourself caught in this vortex and you know destruction is imminent in your life. Perhaps you're already seeing it. Hear me. It does not matter the sin or the depth of the sin. There is a God who can restore you, who will answer when you cry to him, who won't be silent. Put your faith in the one true God who does hear, who hears you. And, and not only does he hear you, he offers, he sends his rescue by sending his own son to absorb the wrath on our behalf. The storm that he bears on our behalf. He, he bears the fire of his own wrath so that you can be safe. He does this on the cross. He did this on the cross. That, and that's what this sacrifice on Carmel ultimately points us to, the cross. The final, fully accepted and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of God's people. You know, Romans 2 comes to mind here. It's that text, Romans 2, that, that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. But he, Paul goes on to say, don't presume. Don't presume on God's kindness or you'll only end up storing up wrath for yourself. So you've got to decide. You've got to decide and you've got to, you've got to decide quickly whether you are going to risk storing up wrath for yourself or if you're going to be safe in the sacrifice. Remember verse 21. I'll just read it again. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? In other words, why do you think having one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom is going to go well for you? It just doesn't work. You're going to be pulled and ripped apart. It reminds me of a story in Matthew 16 about the Apostle Peter. He's one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle Peter is, but he struggled with this very same thing. His devotion was divided. His focus was split between God's heavenly purposes and worldly power. And there's this uh, amazing text in, in Matthew 16. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a great moment for Peter. It's a high moment for Peter. But in this very same chapter, and we're, not, we're talking just a few verses later, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that the Father's plan is that he must die that he must go to the cross. And what does Peter do? He actually rebukes Jesus. He's like, far be it from you that that should ever happen. In other words, absolutely not. This can't be the way. I will not let it happen. And 
how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's basically saying, you're still not getting it, Peter. Your worship, your devotion is still divided. Don't you understand that I am the promised king? Unlike Ahab and all the other unfaithful kings of Israel's past, I am the king whose devotion is not divided. I am laser focused. I am the king who fights for, protects, and advocates for my people. And I will carry out my father's will for them even if it means laying my own life down. No, I will not lead them to destruction. In fact, I will be destroyed for their benefit. I will be slandered. I will be torn. I will be brought to harm. I will be called a fool. I will be humiliated and mutilated. I will be all of those things if it means bringing them to safety. That's the Lord. That's Christ. To sum it all up, to sum it all up, Jesus is the master of undivided devotion. He's the true and better king who saves his people from their divided devotion, from their unfaithful hearts. Can, can I finish with a story? Back in 1974, my mom was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and one of her neighbors was an old widow named Velma Fritz. How's that for an Oklahoma name? Old Velma Fritz. Well, in that spring of 1974, Tulsa was hit by a pretty big tornado. In fact, Velma's house, which is right next door to my mom's, took a direct hit. When my mom's family emerged from their house, which luckily... I think it was just the roof was gone or the roof needed to be replaced, something like that. They saw Velma's house gone. Totally gone, totally gone, except for the inner walls of her hallway closet. And there, huddled inside, taking refuge from the storm, inside her inner closet, old Velma, safe and sound. She survived, why? Because she got low. She survived because she ran to the safe place. So whether you've never surrendered your life to Christ, whether maybe it's you realize now that your ultimate destiny is destruction apart from his safety, or you are a believer and you know that his will for your life is so much better, it's so much greater than this partial obedience, this partial commitment that you've been trying to balance, that you've been trying to manage, that you've been trying to manipulate, that you've been trying to calculate. The call today is, is to respond to God's patience and kindness run to the safe place, run to Christ, repent, run away from sin, be set free from it, get off the fence. Get off the fence. Get both of your feet in the kingdom and confess that the Lord Jesus, he is God. The Lord Jesus, he is God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask simple prayers with the expectation that you would work profound miracles in us. 
Show us, our, show us our sin. Show us our need for your help in getting us out of our patterns of destruction. Forgive us of our divided devotion, our hypocritical worship. We ask for the grace of repentance and for your refreshment and the lives that need it. May nothing come before our worship of your son, Jesus. And may nothing else cloud or cover his lordship over our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray.